0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and I have the privilege this morning of continuing the series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, we look at Acts chapter 3. Let's get started. Well, good morning, and thank you, Steve and Vicki, for leading us in the worship of God. Our passage this morning is from Acts chapter 3. A special, um, Acts, the, the book of the Acts has a, a special place in my heart because when I first chose to read through the Bible, I set myself a modest goal, not less than one chapter a day. And I started with the Acts, and I don't remember how I how I started with the Acts, but man, that, that it reads like a good Who Done It, and uh, that gave me enough momentum to, to read through the rest of the New Testament, and then I waded in at Genesis. And uh, you know, my goal was just one chapter a day, but there are some places you can't put it down. You gotta you gotta keep on reading. Um, So, actually, I finished reading through that first time in just under a year. Because, well, okay, there are some places where it's heavy slogging. Yeah, you know, you get into Leviticus, and that's heavy going. Get into Proverbs, and a chapter of Proverbs is almost too much. You really want to stop at a verse, or maybe two, but... um, then there are then there are the other places where you just can't put it down. Um, you remember when we were looking at the miracles of Jesus' ministry, and we found they were frequently referred to as signs. They were signs pointing to the coming kingdom, signs pointing to um, the divine identity of Jesus, signs pointing to As it were, the on-ramp for the narrow way. But the people who observed those signs generally had to decipher them for themselves. Uh, They had to have hearts that were prepared by the Holy Spirit to recognize God the Son through that sign or miracle. In Acts chapter 3, we have a sign, a miracle Worked through the agency of Peter and John, but it is clearly explained by Peter. The gaping crowd had no excuse for not understanding. Um, and it's interesting to note just something in in uh, Luke's style here. In Acts two and beginning at verse forty three. Um, Luke records that awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending to the temple attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, And then, as we go into Acts 3, Luke gives an example of what he's talking about. Now, if we were to read Acts 2 and then keep on going into Acts 3, um, we might say that it sounds a bit like Acts 3 happened on the same day as Acts 2. Um, But in fact, they might have taken place as much as weeks later, these events. We simply don't know because Luke doesn't tell us. So let's read the first few verses of Acts 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at the ninth hour. That would be three in the afternoon or thereabouts. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. If you did a character study of Peter and John as they are presented to us in the Gospels, it would be hard to think of. Uh, two people who were more different. And yet God put them together that day for his purpose. Peter was the outgoing one. Talkative, impulsive, often opinionated. Someone noted that the only time Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. Um, by contrast, John was the, the serene one, contemplative, reflective, self-effacing, the one who leaned back to Jesus at the Last Supper to ask about the traitor in their midst, the one who describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And yet here they are, demonstrating a oneness in the Spirit that they probably hadn't known before. They had a common purpose and a common Lord And together they recognized, in a way that they never had before, that the Lord Jesus is most worthy of worship. And that sense of the worthiness of the risen Lord Jesus took them to the temple that afternoon. There they, no doubt, intended to meet with many of the other new disciples in a prayer meeting as they likely had been doing for the last several days or weeks, just as Luke described it. <clears throat> now just a kind of a, a side note here, it's interesting to note that the references to prayer in Acts are almost all references to corporate prayer. For example, in Acts one thirteen. Um, says that the the disciples, they they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Uh, A few verses later in Acts 1, Uh, Verse 24, they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And if you go through Acts, you'll find that that happens over and over and over again. I was thinking about that and I said, well, wait a minute. Corporate prayer was important to Jesus as well. He taught us to pray pray together. For example, in uh, Matthew 7 and verse 7, um, we tend to think of it as an individual thing. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then in, in Mark 11 and verse 25, I mean, these are familiar passages. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But every one of those words, every time the word you is there, it's a plural in the Greek. Unfortunately, English doesn't have a plural you. So I have to put on a bit of a a Texas accent here. And you know, so you read it, <clears throat> um, Matthew seven. Ask and it will be given to you all. Seek and you all will find. Knock and it will be open to you all. Or in, in Mark eleven, whenever you all stand praying, it's collective. Forgive if you all have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may may forgive the trespasses of you all. And you remember the Lord's Prayer. Just think about that. The way Jesus gave it to us, it's clear that he expected us to offer it as a group. Because it begins not my Father, but our Father. And then you look at all the plural pronouns in the body of the prayer. Give us this day. Forgive us as we forgive. Lead us. Deliver us. When you look in the Gospel, you find that most of the recorded times most of Jesus' recorded times of private prayer occur prior to his choosing of the twelve. But after choosing them, most of his recorded prayer times included the disciples. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when facing the greatest crisis of his life, the looming shadow of the cross. Even then, he asked the disciples to watch with him. So in every way, the Lord Jesus modeled and also commanded the necessity of praying together. So Peter and John went to the temple, no doubt intending to join with their Christian brothers and sisters in a daily prayer meeting. But God had some other plans. And they were interrupted that day by a lame beggar that they had no doubt seen many times before. And think about this guy, this, this fellow on the step. <clears throat> See if they can find, identify his greatest need. He apparently has friends or family members who are willing to carry him to the temple every day so that he might beg for his sustenance. What's his need? Does he need more money? Perhaps he needs a personal support worker to come and and help him every few hours. I mean, after all, he can't get to the bathroom. What about his housing situation? Perhaps he could use a new wheelchair or a motorized scooter, although I'm not sure that would work on the steps of the temple. Does he have a cell phone? What about his food? Has he been able to attend school? Would he benefit from further education? Now, John and Peter did not conduct a needs assessment inventory. But the Holy Spirit clearly led them to the correct conclusion. If you read it slowly, you discover that the exchange between Peter and this man is loaded with conflicting emotions. Think about... Try to put yourself in the man's position here. He's on the, on the step... Holding out, well, I don't know, a tin cup or something. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Oh, maybe there's something coming here. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, there's Expectation. Peter says, I have no silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Huh? It was no doubt an intense emotional journey in those few seconds. But then things happened. Luke, the physician, is quite interested in the detail. And he explains to us how when Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, that immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up, he stood up, stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Luke's medical background caused him to use technical terms for feet and ankles that are found here nowhere else in the New Testament. Even the word for were made strong is only used here. This is the only place it's used in the physical sense. And refers specifically to bones being put together into their proper alignment. The other New Testament uses of the word are figurative. So. The man standing there for the first time in his life, his greatest need has been addressed, right? But Remember, our God's primary focus as the outworking of his love. His primary focus is bringing sinful human beings into Christ, into fellowship with himself. Look at this guy again. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. More, more had happened to him. Than merely being healed, so that he was able to stand and walk. This man had had a powerful and dramatic encounter with the living God, and the only possible response to the wonder of His grace and generosity is praise. You know, I, I just love this guy's unrestrained expression of joy. Imagine, this guy's 40 years old, so he's in that society, probably past middle age. He's jumping up and down in the temple precincts. That's improper. You can almost see the disapproving frowns as he shouts, Hallelujah! Praise God! Glory to His name! The response, hey, keep it down. You're interrupting other people's prayers. But I'm sure his response would be something like, Don't you realize I have never walked before today? But God has healed me. Praise His holy name. He simply couldn't keep it to himself. So not surprisingly... The people who knew this man's sad past were amazed. And that was the opening that the Holy Spirit had been working toward. Uh, Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Solomon's particle was usually a busy place. And especially at the Jewish hour of hours of prayer. Because there the rabbis taught and debated with their students. There the money changers plied their trade. There many gathered to pray. So in addition to the probably several hundred uh, new Christian believers who gathered there. You can easily imagine um, that the potential audience for Peter's address could be many hundreds. And Luke implies that it was something like 2,000. And this man, who for 40 years had been unable to walk, with his exuberant praise, his walking and leaping in the temple area, drew the attention of most of them they knew him and they could see that something amazing had happened now i rather doubt that most of the crowd had thought this through but they had a dilemma that while they acknowledged that god alone has uh, had the power to do miracles they denied that jesus was god and they denied that his followers had divine power granted by God. So they were left with no explanation for what they'd seen. And they had an additional problem, again, that they probably hadn't recognized. As Isaiah had said, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. But Peter was quite happy to help them think it through. But first he had to lay some groundwork. And the first part was critical for them to understand. So he started off. He addressed the people. And he said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? They had nothing in themselves. They knew that. There was no unusual power that could heal a lame man. So Peter started with that disclaimer. He started in his message. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. Jesus. And he goes on. And, you know, he really couldn't have been more blunt. You delivered him over. You denied. You asked for a murderer. You killed the author of life. The verdict was clear. And I can imagine them kind of squirming as they stood there. They understood that they were guilty of the most heinous crime in the history of criminal humanity. They had killed the very one who had given them life, preferring a murderer over him. But God. You study those words through the scriptures. And you find that they reveal something of the sovereignty of the living God over the affairs of humanity. But God raised Jesus from the dead. To this we are witnesses. That is the key. The whole of our faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Unless Jesus has been raised, we have nothing to say. Especially in the face of death. Unless Jesus is alive now, there is no hope. We simply don't have any hope. And unless Jesus is the present tense king of glory, there is no Holy Spirit no, no power to call upon to rescue us from our sinfulness. If Jesus has not been raised, then what we are doing here today is a sham. At best, wishful thinking. But Jesus has been raised. Peter and John were first-person witnesses To that resurrection. They had met with him. They had talked with him. They had shared meals with him. And the event of that afternoon. The reason they were all gathered there. In Solomon's portico. And the reason why the formerly lame man. Was dancing around. And declaring the praises of God. Is simple. His name. By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The name of Jesus. That's not some magical incantation that we can add to the end of our prayers or declarations. To guarantee positive results. Because his name. Represents what he is. Think about it this way. Here's an absurd contrast. If I were to stand on the steps of Parliament Hill. And announce in the name of Justin Trudeau that the House of Commons and the Senate had just passed a bill that outlawed the use of gasoline, would anybody believe me? I hope not. (laughs) Because I simply don't have his backing. And I have no authority to make such a statement, even if it were true. And I do hope that no one would believe me. To claim anything in the name of Jesus then is to declare that this is his expressed will and purpose. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in, in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, And turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The problem those people in that setting had Was that their own biases had blinded them to the truth while Jesus ministered among them. And as a result, they had done to Jesus just what God had foretold would happen. But now there is a fresh offer of mercy and grace, an offer that comes even to us. Repent, therefore. Turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, repentance is far more than being sorry for what we've done. Far more than regret or remorse. It's not an emotional response at all. It's a thinking response. Because to repent, the word means to change your mind. Specifically about who Jesus is and about what he has accomplished. And about the effectiveness of that great act for me, for you, and for everybody else. It's an act of the will. Now, the the fact is that because we are so twisted, so deformed, so deeply self centered, repentance is not a one time act. It's a lifestyle, a daily act of turning to Jesus. Have you ever driven a car that had a bad front end alignment? You have to struggle with that steering wheel to keep it going straight down the road because it wants to go that way or that way in spite of all you can do. You have to constantly work. So it's the same way with our lives. We have to constantly work to bring our lives into alignment with Jesus. And that's what Paul was talking about In his letter to the Philippians a few years later. When he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work because God is working within us. That initial 180-degree turn, though, when we initially choose to respond to the call of God, that act of repentance and trust, that secures our position before him. And that is the message that Peter laid before the people that day. But there is also a warning beginning at verse 21. He's talking about how the prophets had foretold all this. And then he said in verse 21, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up from for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed Peter promised that Jesus is going to come back and restore everything. And that's what Abraham and Moses and Samuel and all the prophets proclaimed, that through Jesus, through the Messiah, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Revelation 21, we read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Jesus is coming back and will restore the world to its to that perfect paradise that we lost in Eden. Only much, much better. There's going to be perfect peace and harmony and you'll not feel the pain of your unmet needs anymore. Jesus will supply all your needs forever and ever. But this is the choice. We can either believe in Jesus, we can trust him and receive the blessing, or we can reject him and be destroyed from the people. Life comes down to a choice. We can pursue, choose to pursue our needs, our, the money, the relationships, the time, the health, or whatever else. But in the end, that will only lead to more and more need until we perish in our need. Or we can choose to be in relationship with God through Christ Jesus and allow him to take care of all our needs, both spiritual and material and social he may not give us everything that we want. In fact, I'm, I'll guarantee that. But He will give everything that we need, and especially Himself. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus, I urge you to respond in repentance and faith today, then God Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit will work within you both to will and to work for His good pleasure and your eternal well-being. Let's pray. Father, You know You know, the one who is struggling with this issue right now. Work in them, Lord. Help them to respond. And Father, we give you our praise and our thanks because you have done something for us that we could never have imagined possible. You have called us to yourself. You have Redeemed us, you've adopted us, you have given us an inheritance that we can't even imagine. You've called us your own. Father, help us, especially today, but help us to respond in faith, in trust and to exalt the name of Jesus, by whom all this is possible. We give you our thanks in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at vfa.church. Until next time.